Thanks. It is a complex thing to introduce me because I, I wear so many hats. But you know, what most people know me from is I'm that really annoying voice that comes on at the beginning of every recording you listen to of John MacArthur. <laughs> I'm the guy who gives the copyright notice. And I'll admit to you, I'm as annoyed by it as you are. <laughs> when I click on one of those links, I want to hear John MacArthur. I don't want to hear a copyright notice. But <clears throat> there we are. So. Now, last night's message had a little bit of a hard edge to it, and so I want to do something uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum this morning and talk about the childlikeness of saving faith. And I want to do it from an Old Testament passage, Psalm 131. <coughs> psalm 131, if you can be turning there, I'll tell you this psalm belongs to a subset of psalms that I refer to as the Pilgrim Psalms. It's, this is a series of 15 psalms that all begin with the same inscription, a song of ascents, and it's a collection of short psalms that begin in Psalm 120, and it runs, the collection runs consecutively through Psalm 134. So you've got 15 psalms in a row, cataloged that way in our canon, and I believe this constitutes a small book of short choruses within the Psalter itself. They're, they're, to, they're grouped together by design. And these seem to be verses that were sung by pilgrims on the uphill journey to Jerusalem. Three times each year, you know, people from all over Israel would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual feasts. They would come for the Passover, for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, for the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, those three occasions were the Jewish pilgrim feasts, where people would, if they could, come to Jerusalem to celebrate, and everyone who was able would do that. And the journey from, no matter where you started, the journey to Jerusalem was uphill, and it was a long, steep, hard climb. Jericho, for example, is a town less than 16 miles as the crow flies from the center of Jerusalem, the temple, in Jerusalem. It's the, I suppose, the same distance. Well, I don't know my distances around here, so I don't know, but 15 miles. It's not that far. And um, Jericho is 1,200 feet below sea level. It's actually the lowest altitude of any city in the world. And the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is 2,450 feet above sea level. So the journey from Jericho is a long, steep, uphill climb more than a kilometer's rise in elevation. And Josephus says the road in biblical times was 18 miles long. So it was a grueling uphill climb. Anyone who came on foot from Galilee had at least a two or three day journey and there were vast numbers of pilgrims who would make that trek together. And the last leg of their journey took them on that steep, winding road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so along the way, to pass the time and to prepare their hearts for worship, they would sing these 15 psalms. And if you sang one psalm every half hour on the road from Jericho, these 15 psalms would fit the journey perfectly. And three of the last four of this collection are only three verses long. Psalm 131 is the first of these really short choruses, just three verses. So this is a simple chorus with a very simple theme, 
See if you can recognize the theme when I read the psalm. And here's a hint. This echoes something Jesus taught. So here's the psalm. A song of ascents of David. O Yahweh, my heart is not exalted, and my eyes are not raised high, and I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. Surely I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, wait for Yahweh from now until forever. And the theme of that chorus, I'm sure you recognize, it's a, the childlikeness of true faith, which also is the theme of Matthew chapter 18. Hey, listen to the first four verses of Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, therefore, will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Matthew chapters 18 and 19 go on to expound on the childlikeness of true believers. The child whom Jesus placed in their midst of the disciples was symbolic of believers, all believers, not just those who are literally children, but everyone who truly believes in Christ is a child of God. And they are childlike in spirit. Two verses later, in Matthew 18, 6, Jesus refers to believers as these little ones who believe in me. And again, he's not talking about only toddlers, little children. The point he's making here is that truth-saving faith, the faith of any believer, is inherently childlike. Authentic believers have an implicit trust in God, exactly like the absolute trust of an infant who looks to his father and mother for every need. And in fact, still in Matthew, just a chapter later, chapter 19, verse 13, you read this, then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked him. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Now, that, of course, that's a rich passage. It shows God's special care for infants and little children. And when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, I'm convinced that he is speaking both broadly and literally. And that text is actually one of several clues that undergirds our belief that infants who die in infancy are graciously received by Christ into heaven. Yes, they're born fallen. Yes, they have a sin nature, just like you and me. Babies inherit that same sinful nature that's been passed down ever since Adam, and they look so sweet and innocent and as newborns. But just wait. You won't have to teach them to lie or be self-centered or throw tantrums. It's in their nature to do that, and they are just like every one of Adam's natural offspring, they're fallen and guilty and self-willed and enslaved to sin, and they have no more, no more merit before God than you or I. That is the doctrine of original sin, and so it's a vital Christian doctrine. It means we inherit a sinful nature from our ancestors. We didn't become sinners by sinning. 
We sin because it's our nature to do so. We're fallen creatures. And that's true of children and even grandchildren. I know that. I have seven grandchildren. and I love them dearly. But every now and then, they manifest a sinful nature that makes, makes me understand and affirm the doctrine of original sin. And yet, Scripture tells us repeatedly that God is merciful and extraordinarily tender towards little ones in a special way. So we believe, I think most of us do, that if they die, they go straight to heaven, not because somehow they deserve it, not because they're innocent of any kind of guilt or or any of that, but they're received into heaven because God is abundantly gracious towards little children. You see this in several places in scripture. For example, Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, the last chapter or the last verse of the book of Jonah speaks of God's special care for little ones too young to know the difference between their right and left hand. And in 2 Samuel 12 verse 23, David states his expectation that he will see his infant son again on the other side of the grave. Scripture's full of indications that God shows a particular grace to children who die in infancy. And here, Jesus blesses little children and states emphatically that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little ones such as these. And and I think it's appropriate to take that in the literal sense, but we also need to interpret it as broadly as Jesus himself does. He is not here speaking only of little children, literal toddlers. Those words, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, actually apply to everyone whose faith in Christ has that childlike quality of implicit trust. Mark 10 is Mark's account of that same incident where the Disciples try to rebuke people for bringing their children, but Mark adds an extra detail that shows us how broadly this promise applies. Here's Mark's account from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Mark writes, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, And then Mark adds this. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. In other words, Christ pronounced a formal blessing on the the children, the literal children who had been brought to him, in Matthew's words, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. But he also makes another explicit call for all believers to trust him with faith that is pure and childlike. Now, this took place in Galilee among people accustomed to making those annual journeys to Jerusalem for the feast days. And, And they knew these psalms. They knew this psalm in particular. They'd known them well since childhood. They could, all of them, no doubt, sing Psalm 131 from memory. And so the idea of childlike faith would not or should not have been new to them because that is precisely what Psalm 131 talks about. It's a song about the childlikeness of true faith. And notice also that this psalm 
is from the pen of David. We're told that in the inscription. Uh, I, I say this usually when I teach through the Psalms, but it's, it's worth saying it every time. Those inscriptions are part of the inspired text. They exist in all of the very earliest Hebrew manuscripts. <clears throat> Not every psalm has an inscription, but those that do will often tell us the author or the circumstances under which the psalm was written. Uh, psalm 3 is the first of the psalms that has an inscription, and it gives us both the author and the circumstances under which the psalm was written. Uh, psalm 3 is a sad psalm. It's a prayer from a man in trouble, and the inscription of Psalm 3 tells us it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So you need to read that psalm and interpret it in its historical context. And even though it's only the third psalm, it pertains to a later period in David's life and his reign as a king. Around the early part of the 19th century, a certain class of critical scholars began to question the authenticity of the psalm's inscriptions for no other reason than that these sound like annotations from a hand other than the author of the psalm. But all the manuscript evidence that we have indicates that these belong to the inspired text. And the inscriptions are found in, as I said, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts. And in Hebrew, unlike what you find in English Bibles, they are given as part of the text. They're not marginal notes. They're not comments written in smaller or different type. They're penned by hand, just like the rest of the text. And so signatures like these, identifying the author or other pertinent details, these are common figures, uh, features in ancient writings. And you see it even in New Testament times. You know, you and I, when we write a letter, we sign it at the end. But the New Testament epistles generally begin with a salutation where the author identifies himself at the beginning. It seems more appropriate to do it that way to me. I don't know why we put it at the end, because if it's a multi-page letter, you might have to read all the way through it before you find out who you're talking to, you know? So I don't know why we put our signatures at the end, but they did it at the beginning in Scripture, and thus it is with the inscriptions on the Psalms. It might seem a a bit misleading to have them printed in different typefaces as if they were marginal editor's notes, but they bear the same relation to the body of the Psalms as Paul's salutations do at the start of his letters. And only five of these 15 Psalms of Ascent include the author's name. Four of those are Psalms of David. One of them, Psalm 127, is a Psalm of Solomon. And frankly, it's not completely clear in the Hebrew text whether the inscription in Psalm 127 means this was written by Solomon or dedicated to Solomon. It could be either. But our psalm is clear. It's the third of four psalms of David in this whole subset of 15, you know, pilgrim psalms. And it fits perfectly with what we know about David. 1 Samuel 13, 14 and Acts 13, 22 famously refer to David as a man after God's own heart. And Psalm 131 is giving us, in David's own words, perhaps the most simple, succinct description of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. It's it's a heart that appreciates the beauty 
of humble, eager, compliant, childlike trust. It's a simple psalm and a beautiful one. What this psalm describes in many ways is the polar opposite of every value that is venerated by the world, by the unbelieving world, and by our generation in particular. David takes a not-so-subtle poke at the popular brand of skeptical scholarship that you know, has destroyed so many churches and so many seminaries. Sometimes it leads whole denominations astray, this notion that the truth is an academic topic and only our, only our most sophisticated academics can really understand it well and tell the rest of us how to believe it. But it's clear that David believes and understands that the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God and that Yahweh knows the thoughts of men, that they are vanity, and that if anyone needs to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Let him become a child that he may be mature. David has no interest in winning the admiration of people who value things like power and wealth and wisdom and fame. Even though he has all of those things, God sees through all the trappings of earthly prestige and David knows that God sees all things, even the hidden things of the heart. David doesn't care, really, what men think of him. He's like the Apostle Paul, who in Galatians 1.10, Paul wrote, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. And David is just like that. He doesn't care whether he's celebrated by people who are renowned or sophisticated. He wants to be seen by God as childlike, poor in spirit, repentant, meek, merciful, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, pure in heart. That, by the way, is exactly how Jesus describes saving faith in the Beatitudes. Those are the Beatitudes, and they, they paint a sweet and perfect portrait of pure-hearted childlikeness. And David's psalm here is, shorter and simpler than the Beatitudes, but David is drawing a similar picture. Because of the brevity and the content of this psalm, and since it was sung by a group of uh, people, you know, in a setting with families and fellow pilgrims, I would guess that this would have been one of the first psalms learned by many Hebrew children during that long era when sacrifices were being offered daily on the Temple Mount and feasts were regularly celebrated in Jerusalem, this sounds like a child's chorus. But it's also an important lesson for adults about several virtues that flatly contradict every tendency of our fallen nature. They're childlike qualities, and they're harder to cultivate the older you get. Spurgeon said of this psalm, this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. He said, it speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. And here in three verses, according to David, this is what authentic faith looks like. It's not arrogant, verse 1. It's not unruly, first part of verse 2. It's not driven by unhealthy or unwholesome appetites, end of verse 2. It's settled and focused on the Lord, verse 3, and it pertains to eternity from this time forth and forevermore. So here are three elements of childlike faith 
that I want to single out and examine closely with you today. Three virtuous characteristics of true faith that David exemplifies for us in this prayer. He's like a, a newly weaned child who is satisfied to rest in the arms of his mother. And like that, he is humbled, he is hushed, and he is hungry. And we'll let that be our outline. Let's look at those features in this text. First, verse 1, he's humble. And this is my favorite feature of this prayer. Verse 1, my heart is not exalted, and my eyes are not raised high, and I do not involve myself in great matters or matters too marvelous for me. So David declares his humility, and he finds a way to do it that doesn't sound like a boast. And trust me, that's not easy to do. My best friend told me he thinks I ought to write a book and title it, Humility and How I Attained It. <laughs> Which, of course, was his backhanded way of reminding me that I am not always the paragon of perfect, gentle meekness. I get that. It's not easy to be humble, and especially it's not easy to tell people how important humility is when you're a hypocrite like me, you know? There was actually a famous preacher a few years ago, there's no point in naming him, but he wrote a book on humility. And just a couple of years after that book came out, and it was kind of a, a bestseller, it was a good selling book on humility. But just a couple of years after he wrote it, the leaders of his denomination disciplined him for being arrogant and unteachable. He wrote the book on humility. Humility is one of the most evasive of virtues. It's too easy to be proud of your humility. You know, whenever you think you've mortified your self-righteous sense of self-importance, your own pride will rise from the dead to tell you how wonderfully meek and humble you are. But David isn't saying this with any kind of braggadocio. This is not a boastful claim. This is a thankful testimony from a man who deeply feels his indebtedness to God's grace. It's a statement that perfectly embodies everything we know about David's character. He was not haughty. Although he was God's own anointed choice as the Messianic dynasty's first king, his demeanor was not lofty. He didn't scheme or conspire to obtain power and greatness. Like Justin was describing this morning, he had the opportunity to kill Saul and didn't do it because the royal office was given to him by God, not taken for him by himself. So he had nothing to be arrogant about or proud of. When Samuel first anointed him, no one, including David himself, thought very highly of him. Now, notice, by the way, the thoroughness with which David repudiates pride. He names three distinct symbols of human egotism, and he disavows all of them. First, a haughty heart. That's the hidden conceit of those who, like Jesus said of the Pharisees in Luke 18, verse 9, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. That's that haughty heart of pride. David repudiates that. Then he mentions lofty eyes. He's, he's referring here to an arrogant countenance. The opposite of that publican in Luke 18 who was un, unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And finally, David repudiates an arrogant mind. He disclaims any hint of egotism in his thoughts or his motives or his ambitions. 
still in verse 1, I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. Uh, I dare you to find anybody on Twitter who that applies to, right? And he uses a, a Hebrew verb for involve myself that literally means to walk. And so the image this evokes is of a guy who wades into waters that turn out to be too deep for him. Literally, I don't intrude into matters that are too great or too wonderful for me. In other words, true humility, as David describes it here, will tame the heart and the eyes and the feet. The heart, of course, is the seat of evil pride. Lofty eyes are where pride shows itself most clearly in visible form. And feet are a metaphor for all of our actions. And, and David repudiates all of that. He says, true humility, that, that is what ruled David's heart. And it was reflected in his physical posture. It framed his thoughts and his ambitions and his activities. So, uh, in fact, what we know of David, this is true. A humble heart, generally, was the defining feature of his unique character. It's why Scripture describes him as a man after God's own heart. And I love how David himself describes his humility. I do not involve myself in matters, in great matters, or in matters too marvelous for me. Or in the King James Version, neither do I exercise myself in great matters, or in things too high for me. And here's the New American Standard Bible. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now, that is an unusual attitude, sadly, especially in our generation. First of all, he freely admits that there are things too difficult for him. He's not wasting his time trying to unscrew the inscrutable or comprehend the incomprehensible. The things that are plain and straightforward are hard enough to master. He's devoted to what he knows is true, not the lofty opinions of theorists and philosophers. It's extraordinary. As I said, you won't find anybody like that on Twitter very easily. And it's extraordinary even to meet a seminary student with that kind of humble worldview. And in fact, in case there's some seminarians in our midst, let me say this specifically to you. I can't tell you how many gifted young men I have observed over the years who have derailed spiritually because they were seduced by the lure of prestigious academic stature or they were enthralled with theological novelties. And in their eagerness to impress people with philosophy and speculation, they forgot that they were supposed to be serving the Lord with humility, the Lord who has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise so that no one may boast before God. I recently corresponded by email with a young man who had not even started seminary yet, but he'd written a book on the ontology of the Godhead that he was hoping to get published, and he said he, he was prepared to publish it himself if no publisher wanted it, and he knew I was in Christian publishing, so he wanted my advice. And he insisted in his book that every theologian in the history of Christianity has been wrong about the Trinity. And his book was full of bad arguments and misunderstandings and simplistic reasoning and bad interpretations of scripture, but he turned out to be absolutely unteachable. He was in his early 20s when he wrote to me, 
And he was quite certain that he was already smarter and more learned than all the men in church history who ever studied theology before him. He was way over his head and drowning, and, and I could see he was sinking fast, but I could never convince him of that. He actually told me he didn't believe there was anything unfathomable or impenetrable in Scripture. Everything was easy for him to understand. He said he'd never been stymied by any theological conundrum. Everything in the Bible was plain as day to him. And I know a few old guys who think that way too. According to them, nothing is too difficult for them. They always seem to want to make their mark and seal their reputation by, you know, tackling some arcane theological question and coming up with some outlandish doctrinal scheme that nobody has ever thought of before. And frankly, that's how cults get started. But David, a man after God's own heart, despises that attitude, and he flatly disclaims it here. David, who was used by God to write some of the key biblical texts on the infinitude and unfathomable greatness of God, freely admits there are things too difficult for him. He says the same thing in Psalm 13. That's that great psalm on the omniscience and omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, verse 6, David says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. And in 2 Peter 3, 16, the apostle Peter writes, There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. So, quite simply, there are mysteries and enigmas in Scripture, and some of the hardest questions simply aren't answered for us. But we're forbidden to inquire into matters that God has kept hidden. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. And childlike faith accepts that limitation. It's self-evident, really. There are things too difficult for us. I mean, by definition, you can't comprehend infinity with a finite mind. I mean, doesn't that make sense? If something is infinite and your mind is finite, there's no way you can wrap your mind around that thing that is infinite. And that's the very definition of God. We can't figure everything out. We ought to admit it, and we ought to anchor ourselves in the truths that we do understand and then occupy our hearts and minds mainly with the things that are clear. On the other hand, contrary to the current idea that is popular among postmodernists, it is not humility to declare that nothing is certain or clear. That's a corruption of humility. Lots of people today have the false idea that everything we believe about God is simply a matter of personal opinion. You don't really know anything for sure, and nothing is settled or certain, they would say. And therefore, they think, if you say someone else's worldview or religion is wrong, then they're going to say, you're being arrogant. They say, we shouldn't be dogmatic about anything because we just don't know everything for sure. And lots of people who profess to believe the Bible have bought that postmodern lie. Uncertainty or feigned ignorance about everything... That's not humility at all. It's spiritual suicide, actually, because it's a denial of the authority and the perspicuity, the clarity of God's word. That, that false notion of humility 
is not what David's describing here either. He's not saying he doesn't know anything for sure. He's just saying there are some questions that he can't answer. And if you want to know precisely what David means by this, just look at the record of his life. Because the childlike attitude he describes here in verse 1 of our psalm is a virtue that colored his whole life and character, except in a couple of well-known but uncharacteristic incidents where he sinned in notorious ways. In fact, it's ironic, isn't it, that David's greatest sins occurred because his greatest strengths failed him. And that's significant. You see that same phenomenon frequently in Scripture. Moses, for example, Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than anyone who was on the face of the earth, and yet Moses sinned away his opportunity to enter the promised land when he lost his temper in front of the whole nation. David's most outstanding qualities were his purity of heart and his humility, but his two notorious sins occurred because his own strengths of character failed. One, of course, was the incident with Bathsheba, compounded by a diabolical conspiracy to cover it up, involving the murder of her husband, Uriah, hardly an expression of pure-mindedness. David also sinned when his kingdom was at the peak of prosperity, and he sinned by taking a census that was designed to publicize the nation's numerical strength and significance. That's precisely the kind of arrogance that David is condemning in this psalm. But those were deviations. Those were irregularities in the character of David. For the most of his life and career, the humility he extols in this psalm was the dominant feature of his character. His heart was not exalted, and his eyes were not raised high, and he did not involve himself in great matters or in matters too marvelous. Remember, David didn't seek the throne in the first place. In his early adolescence, he was called from the fields while he was tending his father's flocks. And he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king. And even then, David didn't take the throne for himself. He spent years, and in fact, if you do the math on it, it's at least a decade he spends as a fugitive and a refugee living in hiding in the desert, in the wilderness, while Saul pursued him relentlessly, trying to kill him. And although David did have more than one opportunity to end Saul's life, he refused to raise his hand in violence against a king who had been anointed to lead God's people. And then later in his career, when his own favorite son, Absalom, tried to usurp the throne, David left Jerusalem, fled the city, rather than fight against Absalom for the throne. And on the way out of Jerusalem that time, when a filthy lowlife named Shimei cursed David and threw dirt at him, David bore it patiently. So the humility he extols in this verse clearly was reflected in his character throughout most of his life. And in fact, David's character makes a stark contrast to all of the typical kings of the ancient Near East. Their besetting sins were dominated by the arrogance and pomposity that usually characterized the, any, any politician or the rulers of this world. They're all like that, even to this present day. Puffed up, arrogant, nearly all. There may be a few exceptions, but you get what I'm saying. David repudiates all of that. Most men crave respectability and status 
And that's true especially of men who have tasted power and prestige. They tend to seek it all the more. But David was the polar opposite. His crowning virtue was his humility. And even though he was the most eminent man in the nation, the king over God's chosen people, and therefore the most favored man in the world, he desired to be seen by God as childlike. That's what made David truly noble. This psalm, I think, is reminiscent of that incident when David was returning the ark to Jerusalem and Scripture says in 2 Samuel 6.14, he was dancing before Yahweh with all his strength, and David was girded with a linen ephod. In other words, he had removed the royal robes and put on a simple linen garment like the priests wore. So rather than being carried at the head of the procession with all the royal pomp of a king, he dressed so that he would blend in with the priests and he traveled on foot with the procession, dancing and celebrating the return of the ark a hundred years after that ark had been captured by the Philistines in the time of Eli. And the stress in that biblical description is on his joy and his exuberance. David simply did not care what people thought of him. He was totally overwhelmed with joy and, 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 and just gladness that the the Ark of the Covenant was finally coming back to Jerusalem, or actually coming to Jerusalem where it belonged for the very first time. But 2 Samuel 6, verse 16 says, Of his own wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. Her father, Saul, was more concerned with kingly dignity than that. And when David arrived home, she gave him an earful. Verse 20, she came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has glorified himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the worthless ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Now she makes it sound like he, he just was dancing naked. He wasn't, he was wearing a priestly garment. All he had done was lay aside his kingly robes, exactly what Christ did for us. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, although existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave by being made of the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that was a scandal too, you know, the God of the universe and the rightful king of kings coming to earth in such a lowly fashion, that's a stumbling block to many people who wanted a more dignified and exalted Messiah. But Proverbs 15.33, before glory comes humility. And I love how David answered Michael, 2 Samuel 6 verses 21 and 22, he said, I was dancing before Yahweh who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Yahweh over Israel, and therefore I will celebrate unto Yahweh, and I will be esteemed even more lightly than this, and will be humble in my own eyes. Franz Dalich, the great uh, 19th century Lutheran Old Testament scholar, paraphrased 
David's words to his wife this way. He, he, was, he says, David was essentially saying, I esteem myself still less and, and I now, than I now show it, and I appear base in my own eyes. He's saying to her, you think I ought to be out there parading my dignity? I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm even less than how you think I looked. You think I look childish instead of kingly? Before God, I am more of a little child than you ever would imagine. And that's the spirit of this psalm. David understands the childlikeness of true faith, and he purposely cultivates a childlike spirit before God. It's a holy self-abasement. The very thing Jesus spoke of in Matthew 23, 12, when he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And everything scripture tells us about David affirms the testimony he gives in this psalm. Even when he sins a horrific sin, you see his humility in the way he repents. And in fact, the biblical epitaph on his life acknowledges his sin, but scripture records it in a way that reminds us that David's presumptuous sins were not what characterized his life. In fact, I'll read it for you. This is God's own summary of David's uprightness his epitaph after he died from 1 Kings 15, verse 5. David did what was right in the sight of Yahweh and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all of the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So his character and his track record are such that he can even say this about himself. He can declare his own meekness without actually forfeiting it. Even the way he speaks of humility is humble. He claims humility without a hint of pride, and that's something only a really humble man can do. So that's the dominant characteristic of childlike faith, humility. The person who is truly childlike stands out, first of all, because he's humble. Second, according to our psalm, he's hushed. Verse 2, Surely I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now again, the stress here is on a childlike implicit trust, a calm and quiet heart, a, a soul that's totally at rest, and it's comparable to a sleeping child, well-fed, with no fear or disquiet, because the child knows that his mother is there to, need, to meet any need or to avert any crisis. And it's a beautiful picture. I love to see a child in, asleep in his mother's arms, and I wish I could sleep that way. <laughs> but I can't do it anymore. By the way, in this symbolic expression, the mother figure here is God. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, God is a father of the fatherless, but here you see him pictured in the role of a caring mother to those who have childlike faith. Paul reminded the Thessalonians, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And here it's that same comparison, but applied this time to God, who is likewise gentle and full of tender care for his children. But that's just an incidental implication of this verse. The point David is making here is about himself. He says, I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. So in other words, he's not like one of those three-year-olds who gets the seat right behind you on a cross-country flight. 
you know, screaming and fidgety and kicking the back of your seat because they feel the motion of the plane and the changes in the cabin pressure, and they're frightened, and they're uncomfortable, and they want everybody to know it. But David says he's like a weaned child, still an infant, but one who has moved past the anxiety and uncertainty of the weaning process, because the child now knows that even when the mother says no to her child's pleading and complaining, still every need will be met. And more than that, the parent knows better than the child how best to satisfy that gnawing hunger. It's a picture of a child who has learned to trust and be satisfied. And it's also an illustration of still the absolute dependence and unquestioning trust of a child for his loving mother. This is the nature of authentic faith, the crying and complaining and fidgeting restlessness that are part of the weaning process. Those things now belong to the past. And so this is a child at rest in the loving tenderness of a maternal arms. It's a picture of pure satisfaction. The spiritual weaning process disengages our hearts from everything that is selfish, every appetite that is sinful, every fear that foments doubt and distrust. It has a quieting effect on the soul. It fosters a sense of security. Like in the song we just heard, we know he will hold us fast. Again, it has a quieting effect on our hearts. David wrote about this often, Psalm 27. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Or Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride, Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere men do to me? That, by the way, is a common expression repeated in both the Old and the New Testaments. The question, what can man do to me? Psalm 118, verse 6, Yahweh is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will men do to me? Security, that is actually one of my favorite theological terms of all times. I, uh, before, the, this was the, actually the first theological dilemma that I ever pondered, almost as soon as I embraced Christ with saving faith, I began to wonder, can I lose my salvation? Which is to say, am I really secure in Christ? And to ask the question that way is to reveal the absurdity of it. Scripture places so much stress on the security of the believer that, frankly, I don't see how any Bible-believing individual can hang on very long to the notion that it is possible to be lost again after you were saved. The truth is that if you could, if you could sin in some way that would forfeit your salvation, you would, because we are all too weak to stand on our own. Every one of us is prone to sin and powerless to save ourselves, but scripture says God is the one who keeps us. 
He will hold us fast. 1 Peter 1, verse 5. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's speaking about our ultimate glorification. God himself is keeping us safe eternally until we are finally perfected. He holds us in a manner that frankly is comparable to a mother rocking a sleeping child, only he does it with infinitely more strength and security. John 10, 29, no one will snatch them out of his hand. If you're truly saved, you are secure in Christ. In fact, to quote the Apostle Paul on this very subject, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you believe that promise, it should hush all your fears. That same sense of security is precisely what causes David to say in verse 2 of our psalm, I have soothed and quieted my soul. Now, there's another implication in this word picture. The imagery of a weaned child means that growth is steadily taking place. This child is coming to maturity. In the words of 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies, we long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. But there comes a time, however, when, according to Hebrews chapter 5, when we graduate from the milk of God's word to the meat of it. The writer of Hebrews actually scolds his readers for demanding milk rather than solid food. The spiritual appetites in those people weren't developing properly. Hebrews 5.13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, but solid food is for the mature. And that brings up the third characteristic of David's childlike faith. First, he is humble. Second, he is hushed. Now third, he is hungry. And this image that David draws for us of a weaned child peacefully asleep in the arms of his mother, fully satisfied, wholly at rest, well past the fidgety restlessness every child goes through when mother finally stops saying yes to every request for nursing, the child now knows a variety of flavors available with more solid foods, and he has learned that grown-up food actually satisfies longer. But trust me, because we've had a few babies go through this stage in our family, a weaned child actually gains a bigger appetite. Solid food awakens a taste for more. Crying and panic at feeding time gradually recede into the past, but that child doesn't stop eating. And in fact, for a couple of years, you'll continually have to remind the weaned child not to put everything they touch into their mouths. And this is true in the spiritual realm as well. The restful security that David describes in the first part of verse 2, that feeling of pure satisfaction, that doesn't nullify the spiritual appetite. In fact, the appetite grows, and if your faith is truly childlike, you will stay spiritually hungry, and you will never lose your appetite for the meat of the word. And one more thing about this. Even after weaning, 
The infant is still totally dependent on mom for food. You can't give an 18-month-old a jar of baby food and expect him to feed himself. Not going to happen. The absolute reliance of that child perfectly pictures the childlikeness of true faith even after the child is weaned. And the psalm closes then in verse 3 with a short refrain that echoes Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, wait for Yahweh. And this time he adds, O Israel, wait for Yahweh from now until forever. This is a call to faith, childlike faith. The psalmist's testimony was brief and simple, just two verses long, and now he turns to the congregation and appeals to them to join him in making Yahweh the singular focus of their hope and their trust. Now, let's look at this in light of the gospel and consider why all true faith is inherently childlike. The only legitimate response to gospel truth is humbled, hushed, and hungry faith. That's because the gospel itself is a rebuke to human pride. The gospel, as set forth in scripture, rips every artificial covering off of our fleshly pride. The starting point of gospel truth is all about the utter hopelessness of fallen humanity. It starts by telling us we are condemned sinners and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So we are totally dependent on Christ to save us. We have no real righteousness of our own. In the words of scripture, where is boasting? It's excluded. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, the gospel is antithetical to human arrogance. And that's why true faith is, has this quality of childlike humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For those of you who are believers, cultivate that spirit of childlike humility. Don't give in to the arrogance of our self-centered culture, but clothe yourself in humility. And if you're not a believer, remember that it was Jesus who said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Ponder that and ask God to open your heart to believe with true and childlike faith. And now let's pray. Father, we confess we are too self-willed and sinful. We're too often like delinquent adolescents rather than obedient children. Increase our capacity for faith, and may we, like David, cultivate that simple, humble, restful, eager, childlike faith, trust in Christ, and may that be the characteristic quality of our life and character so that we honor the one who humbled himself for our sake. We pray in his name. Amen.